Well, good morning. Uh, oh, that was nice. Uh, many of you don't know me. Some of you, that's okay. I don't need it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, many of you don't know me. Some of you do. That's all right. My name is Jeremy Rios. Um, I come from America. Yes, I'm sorry. Hooray. Yeah, hooray. Some hoorays. I'm sorry. Uh, I was born outside Chicago. Um, I went to a school called Wheaton where I met my wife, Liesl. Uh, then in 2005, we moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, where I went to seminary. And after the three and three or four years of seminary, I was a full-time um, pastor for the last eight and a half years. So, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I feel your pain, Toby. Um, so, um, and at, at the end of that, uh, felt a st- there's actually a great story to tell. I'm not going to tell it this morning about how we were called from Vancouver to St. Andrews and how God has provided for us miraculously to be here. And it's a magnificent story of faith that I'm not going to tell you. So I have to save it, save it for another occasion. So uh, we've been married 13 years. We have three children, um, eight, five, and three, and then one coming in August, which will be the last, last, <laughs> last one that we have. Um, and we're here for we're here for the next uh, at least three years, so I can write uh, supposedly write a PhD and add letters to my name, which is really what my no 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 that's not what I mean. Um, I um, my first love, and hopefully this will come through today a little bit. My first love is for the Word of God. Um, my equal first love is for God's people, the church. Um, and if I gain any credentials, I I hope and pray it's simply for the service of God's people. I really could. I could care less about how many letters are behind my name, because when we die, it, it just costs more money on the tombstone. So, I know why would I, why would I do that? Um, one of the things I've noticed, uh, having been here for the last six months or so, is that uh, Toby is very chill in terms of his preaching. He's very cool and chill. And the others who've spoken, Jesse, he's also really chill. Um, I am not chill. Um, in fact, I might be positively excitable. So this could be um, this could be interesting. Uh, sometimes I can speak quickly. You might feel like you're drinking from the fire hose. Um, hopefully, hopefully that won't be the case, and and we'll all move along nicely together. So actually, I just want to begin with the word. I want to begin. We're going to read from John uh, chapter seven forty through eight twelve, and um, I I typically read from the NASB. That wasn't an option. So since ESV is on the board, I'm going to read from the screen. I'll encourage you to read along uh, with me as we do this. So uh, John writes that when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why, do you not, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? But they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Go on. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. 
And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's a magnificent story, isn't it? It's one of the most memorable stories that Jesus ever told. It's great. Now, normally in a circumstance like this, I would want to, since, you're, since I'm new to you in many ways, I'd want to tell you some personal stories so you get to know me a little bit. But to my knowledge, I've never committed adultery, nor have I ever been caught in the act of committing adultery. So I find myself in a position of not necessarily being able um, to identify some of those things that would help you to know me more. And maybe that's not important. Actually, I don't care if you know me. I want you to know the guy who wrote these things and said these things to us. And I'm happy for you to know him and not me. So maybe there's some funny things on the way, but maybe not. As I floated through this passage over the past weeks, two big things came, rose to the top for me. Two things that I felt like were really important to say. And one of them is a word about judgment. And the other is a word about grace. A word about judgment and a word about grace. And I think both of them need to go together. So let's talk about each one of these in turn. So I think that this passage contains one of the two most common phrases quoted from the Bible at Christians. Let him who is without sin, huh? and do not judge. It's a kind of argument-ending statement. You've dared to say something critical, and now we say in response to you, don't judge. Jesus said it. Well, there's also that kind of, that kind of um, there's the alternative, let him who lives, let, what was it, those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, right? Which kind of echoes back to these guys with stones in their hands. It's not, it's not a conversation continuing statement. It's a shut up statement. So you idiot, how dare you disobey Jesus in this way? And I think we need to pause and we need to observe a few critical things about this phrase. The first is that the statement, do not judge, is itself a judgment. When I've told you not to judge, I've judged you for judging. (laughs) At which point, if you ever get someone say to you, do not judge, you can tell them, are you judging me? And that might give them some pause, which is good. The other thing is that we actually can't quite escape judgments. We make them all the time. We tell people they did a good job or a bad job. Uh, Jesse posted the other day on Facebook that he graduated with first-class honors. Good job. Now, here's the deal. University has passed judgment on Jesse, and they ranked him first class, and we happen to approve of the judgment. And so it's unobtrusive to us. We don't mind it, but it's still a judgment that's being made. We're also very happy to judge people like Donald Trump. Universally, we judge him to be a moron. I speak as an American, sorry. (laughs) And you laugh because we agree with the judgment. It's inoffensive because we agree with it. What we don't like is judgments we don't necessarily agree with or judgments in which we find ourselves in the crosshairs. Jeremy, you're overweight. It stings, right? 
It hurts because it's true. (laughs) And even in the final words that Jesus speaks to the woman, go and sin no more, that's a judgment. You were a sinner. You were caught in the act of adultery. Quit it. You got away this time. Now go and live. That's, that's, That's a judgment. So we need to remember that judgments are inescapable. And you know what? We even make judgments in reading the story. Who's the good guy in the story? Go ahead. Sunday school answers. Who's the good guy? Jesus. That's right. That's right. Have you, sorry, have you heard the story about the Sunday school teacher who goes to the class and said, what's brown and runs along the ground? The students shake their heads no. You're like, what's brown? Runs along the ground, collects nuts, hides in trees. The students won't say anything. You're like, what's wrong? It's, you know, it's brown. It has, it has a tail, bushy tail, does these things. One student finally raises its hand and says, it sounds like a squirrel, but the answer has to be Jesus. <laughs> So the good guy in the story is Jesus. Okay, that was the straightforward answer. Who are the bad guys? Also straightforward. Who are the bad guys? How dare they? How dare they bring this poor woman and do this thing? And you know what? It's kind of like the roles of just reverse sometimes when we judge people. It's like we drag some Christians before Jesus and say, Jesus, I caught this Christian in the very act of judging someone. Wait a minute. (laughs) Whose heart is in the wrong place at this point? And so we really have to pull back from our, misunderst- I think, our misunderstandings of how judgment is meant to work. And the truth of the matter is we make judgments all the time. We make judgments and bad judgments. Judgments are, in fact, an inescapable part of how we think and act in the world. And what that means is not that we don't make judgments. It's that we need to train how we make judgments. We have to form our hearts in the midst of this. So let's turn to the one passage where Jesus talks the most about judgment. Let's just take a brief break from John and go to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Oh, it's here already? Great. All right, so here we get this verse, most likely quoted at us. Let me read this verse 1 through 6. Let's read it to, I'll read it for you for a moment. So Jesus says, Judge not that you not be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw away your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, I want to point out something very obvious that I think a lot of people have missed, which is that right after Jesus says, do not judge, he gives advice on how to judge. Clearly, something else is going on here because he's giving us tools and tactics for how to go about this. And he gives us, I think he gives us a number of different ones. So uh, verse two is pretty clear. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. In other words, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Uh, With the standard by which you judge people, you yourself will be judged by that standard. Now, if that standard is you and your opinions and your thoughts, you're in trouble. Because you don't live up to your own standard. We all live beneath the level of our own expectations. We all fail. We make misjudgments. We make goofy decisions. We judge a situation from one way, and we miss all the context that brought information to it from the other sides. We're bad at this. And so what kind of standard do we have to have? We have to have a perfect standard. And there's only one perfect standard, and that's the life of King Jesus. And under the measurement of King Jesus, we both come up short. Which leads to the next business of performing log surgery. Have you ever had a speck of sawdust in your eye? It's remarkably uncomfortable. Nobody wants a speck of sawdust in your eye. But if the person coming to you to deal with a speck of sawdust in his eye is wearing 
wooden glasses, he'd be like, dude, chill out. <laughs> Let's deal with this first. And so take a look at yourself before you go to somebody else. It's a very simple piece of advice. A friend of mine pointed this out to me years ago, but if, if you go through the business of log surgery, it's going to make you more tender in dealing with someone else's eyes. Your heart's going to be more tender. You'll be more gentle. You won't come as a judge, but you'll come alongside. You recognize, I've had things in my eyes too. It's not fun. Can I help you? Drives you to be side by side in judgment. Then he goes on and gives another piece of advice. He says this business about throwing the dogs what is holy and your pearls before swine. And I think Jesus is encouraging us to make judgments ahead of time about who we share our judgments with. There are people for whom your judgments won't make a lick of difference. So it's a good lesson for many Christians to know when to shut up. I don't need to speak. I will not bring light to this situation. I'll be trampled. My words will be degraded. And it's probably best for me to walk away. So what does Jesus tell us? He tells us to use the right measure. He tells us to perform log surgery on ourselves first. And he tells us to be wise about who we share our judgments with. And I think this then reinterprets, let's go back to verse 1. It gives us some clue in terms of what verse 1, judge not that you be judged. I don't think it means that we can't make judgments. I think it means something more about our attitude in, in judgments. How we perform the activity of judgment needs to be modified by these clear things. So I'll pick on Toby because he's the biggest target. So if I'm a judge, I come to Toby. I use a big microphone, a big space, and I come at him and say, Toby, your spending of money is horrible, right? You've bought three cars and two motorcycles in the past weeks, and you're, I just, you're, you're a profligate, you know? And I, I accuse him, and now I'm using power, and he begins to feel ashamed, and I've dragged him before the tribunal, and I'm using shame to make him modify to my perceptions. And in the process, I've done damage to community. But I think what's supposed to happen, pick up your coat for a second. I think what's supposed to happen, I think we're supposed to sit side by side and have a conversation as brothers. Toby, I'm not the best with money, but I'm really concerned because Jesus is coming and we both have to give an accounting for our bank books. Oh boy. <laughs> when we judge rightly, when we judge, I think, the way Jesus asked us to judge, and this section of the Sermon on the Mount is about how we live in community. How do we deal when we are a community of the people of God and people around us are screwing up? What do we do with that? And this is part of that advice. How do we maintain the life of the community? I am more interested in judgment in Toby's life than I am in being right, than I am in getting my way. And so we have to come alongside one another. So I think that's the word about judgment. And I think fundamentally, it's that God wants our life and not our death. So, second word is a word about grace. And now we come back to John chapter 7. And we can't look at this and not overlook. We can't miss some of the gross injustices going on. And the biggest of them is that the last time I checked, it takes two people to commit adultery. And if you are caught in the act of adultery, which is the words they use in Greek, it means that they have found this woman in the act and they have dragged her from whatever uncomfortable position she's in and they've left the guy behind. These guys are not interested in justice. 
They're not interested in life. And it tells us they're doing this to try and trap Jesus somehow. And this gets us to more kind of wickedness because it reveals the heart of what's going on. As we just said, the law is given to us to create life. The Torah is there so that we can have life and community and so that we can live in the life of God together. It's given to us so we can experience God face to face and know his presence. And disobedience from the law in the Old Testament is the stuff that gets you ejected from God's presence. And so we want the law because it means we get to be with God. And if we begin to use the law to manipulate and to violate, then we've done something horribly wrong. Think of it as a tool. A hammer is a magnificent thing. If you need to pound a nail, hammer. It's great. Your palm, not so great. Screwdriver, only in a pinch. Hammer is magnificent. If you need to beat a board that's kind of out of, out of the way into place, hammer, quite good, useful. It's got other uses that are great. But if I were to use a hammer to discipline my children, it's a horror. It's a horror not only because it's a gross misuse of the hammer, it's a horror because what went wrong in my heart that I would think this is a good idea? What's going on in the hearts of this mob of these Pharisees that they think this is a good idea? Something is grossly wrong with these men. Now, Jesus is brilliant at disarming. They show up at the angry mob. Their hands are dusty. They've got rocks in their hands. This woman caught in the act of adultery. Indignant. Righteous anger. And Jesus squats down and begins writing in the dirt. What? He just ignores them. This is a brilliant disarming move. He stands up, says his word, <laughs> back down to the ground. Um, I, have a, I have a good friend who was a former model, and she was, ironically, she was a cruise ship singer, and now she does consulting work for like major corporations. We, my wife and I think she's actually a spy. And we're not entirely sure because she gets all over the place. And one of the things she does is she's in these high-powered meetings with, like, billionaire executives. And she'll take out a nail file and start to paint her nails in the meeting. And it throws all the men off. It's a disarming tactic. It's a brilliant disarming tactic because suddenly they have to lose their bluster. And they're they're kind of like, what's going on in this moment? And she's the consultant, so she can do whatever she wants. Jesus also has a brilliant disarming tactic. He disarms them. And then, of course, his words disarm them as well. Let him, is without the first, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And, of course, it says the older ones who have had the most time to get busy sinning, they realize, okay, I'm in trouble. And then the younger ones are left, and they feel lonely. And so it's a brilliant. It's a brilliant defeater. My uncle would say this lets the air out of the balloon of their, their desire. This kind of withers and fades away, and the crowd goes away. He doesn't lash out, doesn't rise to their anger, but he squats and writes. Now, this is very fascinating. In fact, it's quite shocking. Uh, It's shocking because it is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is recorded as writing. Jesus doesn't, nowhere else does it say Jesus writes. Uh, We believe he can read. He sits in the synagogue in Luke chapter 6. He opens the scroll and he reads from the scroll. So Jesus can read. He probably could read and write. Uh, Jesus didn't write any books. Do you think about that? Like Jesus didn't write. Uh, A friend of mine says that um, if Jesus wrote a book, it would look more like Amos, like angry sermons. It doesn't look like the stories we have about Jesus. But aren't you, and think about it for a minute, aren't you kind of grateful that Jesus didn't write any books? If he did and we had them, don't you think we'd worship the words in some kind of uncomfortable way? Um, Some weird things would happen in our hearts if that happened. So Jesus sits down. He writes. 
Uh, we get so few details about Jesus. Do you realize that he's the most important person who ever lived and no one bothered to tell us what he looked like? You look at his hair color, his height. You don't know if he's right or left-handed. You don't know if he, did he, was he, was he normal? Was he athletic? Was he chubby? Did he, we don't, even, even his word, we, we think he's a carpenter, but the word tecton can just mean laborer. He might've been a stone cutter. We don't know. We know so little about what Jesus did and who he was. And yet here we find him writing and we don't know what he wrote. This is, this has created huge amounts of scholarly concern. What did Jesus write? See, what? Is he drawing a fish? Is he drawing a stone? Is he drawing the other? Is he write the name of the guy she's committing adultery with? Ooh, wow, that would be ominous, wouldn't it? And there's all sorts of things we think about. And yet I think, we, I think when we do this, maybe we miss the main point. It says that he wrote, he wrote with his, um, in Greek, the word is doctulo. He wrote with his finger. It's very interesting. What's interesting is because there's only one other place where someone, there's only a few other places where people write with their fingers. And one of the key ones is in Exodus, when God writes the tablets of the law with a finger. This gets interesting. Let's look at Exodus uh, chapter 31 and verse 18. And this is he God gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. That's pretty, that's, wow. God, eternal spirit generated some kind of finger that that was able to carve in stone. I mean, you get these moments in like the old Charlton Heston movie where there's like sparks flying. They're going all over the place. It's brilliant. Okay, this is not relevant, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Those of you who've seen A History of the World Part 1 with Mel Brooks, he comes down the mountain with three tablets, and he stumbles. He's got them. He gets down, and he says, I bring you these 15, and he stumbles, and one one drops and breaks. Ten! Ten commandments! I don't recommend that movie, but that scene is great. <laughs> so he's got, these, he's got these Ten Commandments and now these tablets written by God. What a magnificent thing. And Moses comes down from the mountain and he catches Israel in the very act of adultery. Not only fornicating with a golden calf, an idolatry of the heart, a covenant breaking, but fornicating with one another. They've brought Egypt out of Egypt with them, and it's as if nothing had changed. And in a fit of rage, Moses smashes the tablets on the ground. You don't deserve this. You do not deserve God's grace. You don't deserve his presence. You don't deserve to know him. You deserve death. And many of them die that day because of this. But... Moses goes back to the mountain. He pleads for Israel's life. And in Exodus 34, 1, we see this. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Twice, God writes, in between, Israel commits adultery. Twice, Jesus writes. And in between is a woman caught in the act of adultery. What's John saying to us? What have the Pharisees really missed about Jesus? One thing they miss is that the person who writes in stone like this, who writes on our hearts, is God. There's 
kind of frightening who Jesus seems to be pointing to be at this moment. But the other is that you yourselves, who claim to be stewards of this law, deserve the death that's contained within it. And yet God's been gracious to you. Should you not be gracious to this woman as well? It's a very frightening situation. And I wonder if any of the older men got it. I think John gets it. John presents it to us. It's just a startling thing that we have to sit with. So what can we say? I think we can say that God is more interested in life than he is in death. Think about that for a minute. God is more interested in life than he is in death. He's more interested in your life than he is in your death. In fact, God does not desire the death of any person. He wants all to have life and be with him. He wants your life. And some of you, no doubt, feel condemned about life. You feel condemned by things you've done and things you've seen done, things that have been done to you. And God says to you, I want your life. I don't want to condemn you in this way. And yet, the word about judgment reminds us that God is indeed deeply grieved by our sin. It hurts him. It's painful to him. The Israelites, and in many ways, much of the Old Testament is there to remind us that there is a real penalty for sin. It's not a thing that can just be simply wiped away. It's only wiped away with cost. So God is grieved by what's wrong. And yet, above all else, he still wants us to live. It says in Hosea that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. He desires his commandments to be written in the depths of our hearts, not as externals, not as tools and instruments to be used for our benefit or our advantage or against other people. He doesn't want us to use people. He wants us to use the law to bring life to people. But he wants the law written in ink that pierces us with grief. And I think that means that when we judge, our judgments must always be flavored by our awareness that sin is very serious, but ultimately that our judgments are meant to bring life. And here's where the Pharisees have really messed up. The whole passage about judging, judging Jesus rightly, making the right kinds of decisions, and they don't get it. They don't get that they're supposed to come to Jesus with grieving hearts and let him be the light that illuminates them. They think they're the light, and they're about to be displaced. We come once again to this startling phrase that let him who is without sin cast the first stone. There's only one person who qualifies in this story to cast a stone, and it's Jesus. And according to the law, Jesus has every right to take up a stone and bash this woman's head in. He has the right. But he doesn't exercise it. What he does instead is he accepts nails and spear wounds. And in his death, he takes on every death penalty required by the law. So that none of us anymore has to die. Which is very, very astonishing. Let me pray for us. Let me invite um, Jesse to come back up. And this is a time, um, a time of ministry where you can come forward to meet this Lord. Because Jesus lives and he loves you. And he may want you to grieve 
but only so that he can make you alive. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you above all for who you are. I thank you that you are absolutely brilliant, that you know people and you know situations and you know how to respond and that you're not, your knowledge is not locked in time and is kind of um, bound into history, but you know how to deal with people even today and in these moments. You are just as a brilliant disarmer today as you have been. Lord, I ask that you continue to write your law in the depths of our hearts, not so we could be legalists, Lord, you never meant that, so that we can know what it cost you to bring us into your fellowship, so that we can honor you in how we live and move and walk in life. We can honor you in our relationships, in our choices, in our pocketbooks, in our voting habits, in the people we see on the street, in our friendships, in our work relationships, and our enemies, Lord. Be the light that helps us to make these right judgments. Lord, I just want to say I feel like maybe maybe there are some who are afraid of condemnation. Some who know that if they were caught in the act, they would bear such great shame. Show to us, each of us, Lord, and to them especially, when we stand before your tribunal, you meet us with a stern grace.